Support for the Legislative Gazette comes from New York State United Teachers, a union of professionals standing with more than 600,000 workers in education, human services, and health care with the Our Voice, Our Values, Our Union campaign. And United University Professions, representing 37,000 academic and professional employees at SUNY campuses and teaching hospitals across New York State. Frederick E. Cole, President, UUPinfo.org. New York Governor Kathy Hochul and legislative leaders agreed on a package of gun control measures this week that includes banning the purchase of assault-style weapons to New Yorkers under the age of 21. The Legislative Gazette's Karen DeWitt reports. The measures require that anyone who wants to purchase a semi-automatic rifle must first obtain a license and that the minimum age to buy the weapon would be 21. The alleged gunmen in the mass shootings at a Buffalo grocery store and at the school in Texas were both 18 and had recently purchased AR-15s. A similar law in California was struck down by a federal appeals court earlier in May, which said it was unconstitutional. Governor Hochul, speaking before the details of the bill were announced, says she won't let that ruling deter her. I'm not going to let my fear of losing a court case to stop me from what I think is correct for New Yorkers and will protect them. Because you may get a good judge also that actually cares and has common sense. We understand that these are not punitive measures. Other bills would make the buying of bulletproof vests illegal unless they are purchased by people who are in law enforcement or other related professions. Both alleged shooters in Buffalo and Texas bought and wore body armor. Social media networks operating in New York would have to adopt transparent policies on how they respond to hate speech on their platforms and make available easily accessible ways to report hateful conduct. Another bill authorizes the state to Division of Criminal Justice Services to determine if micro-stamping of semi-automatic pistols is technologically feasible, and if it is to establish a program to implement the technology. Hochul says micro-stamping creates a fingerprint on the bullets that can help law enforcement to more easily track the guns and potentially link the weapons to other crimes. But she says gun manufacturers have been resistant. The industry needs to wake up and say, we'll be partners in this. Because I would think that given the liability involved, that they want to do everything they can to make sure that their products are not used in the commission of any crime and certainly not in the commission of a mass slaughter of innocent children. And the state's red flag laws would be tightened to require that police and DAs file extreme risk protection orders to seize firearms whenever they receive credible information that someone might be a danger to themselves or others. The red flag law was not invoked when the alleged Buffalo shooter threatened to commit a murder-suicide at his high school one year earlier in 2021. The measures are expected to be acted on before the legislature leaves for the summer sometime later this week. In Albany, I'm Karen DeWitt. listening to the Legislative Gazette, program about New York state government and politics. I'm David Gustina. 
Joining us now, Legislative Gazette Political Observer Alan Shartalk. Alan, as we just heard from our Karen DeWitt, Governor Hochul and legislative leaders agreed on a package of gun control measures this week, which include requiring micro-stamping of pistols to enable tracking of fired cartridges, prohibiting the sale and purchase of armored vests for anyone not in law enforcement or other approved professions, raising the purchase age for a semi-automatic rifle to 21 from 18, making semi-automatic rifles subject to the same regulatory structure in the state as pistols, meaning a license would be required, and eliminating the grandfathering of large-capacity ammunition magazines that were legally possessed before New York approved the SAFE Act in 2013, New York, of course, a blue state, which already has some of the strictest gun laws in the nation, and we've now gone further, and yet still trying to get something done in Washington. Well, David, this is an interesting country, which we have lots of different states with lots of different rules. If you pass a law in New York, and it does put a bit of a damper on the way in which guns could be used if they were purchased here, and if they weren't purchased across state lines, now we got a mess in this country. And because we have 50 states, and because each state is doing its own thing, we know that we're in real trouble. We need to be able to do something on a federal level which says you can't carry guns across state lines and other things, and there'll be people listening to this who will be ticked off, but that's, as we say, too bad. We know people are being mass slaughtered in this country. We see over a single weekend terrible things happening as people try to hold on and as more people are being killed. Nope, sooner or later we have to face this. So we go from the new gun restrictions passed in New York this week to Governor Hochul's mention that it's likely, depending on how the Supreme Court decides on the concealed carry law that impacts New York, of course, it's a case out of New York, will rule on that case. And that may mean the legislature comes back to Albany to deal with that. And as we've talked about before, imagine with what's recently happened on the New York City subway, people carrying guns on their hip under their coat. It's like the Wild West. We're brought back to Gunsmoke and to Miss Kitty and Matt Dillon and Chester and all the rest of them. The fact is, this is a different scenario, but we do know how important it is to control guns. And we know that Kathy Hochul knows it too. And she's saying it. And she's saying, basically, I don't care who yells at me. I know what's right, and I'm going to do what's right. We need to control these guns. We need to put limits on the violence that we do to each other. So can the legislature do it? Oh, isn't that terrible? They may have to come back to do it. Now, when they're running for office, David, do they say, oh, I'm not going to run if I think I have to come back from time to time to fix what I've already screwed up? No, they're not going to say that. But that's what's really going on. We elect a legislature, we elect a governor, and we say, okay, my job may be making soap bars, my job may be doing this or that or riding a bicycle, but your job is to make the laws and to make them sensible. And if you don't do it, we're going to hold you responsible. We're going to go to the polls and we're going to vote you out, and you deserve to be voted out because you're not doing your job. The other area that so many talk about, often Republicans who support gun rights say, you know, it's the illegal guns that are the problem. Well, New York Governor Kathy Hochul has set up a state illegal gun task force to deal with this issue, which is 
quite frankly, a huge problem when you find guns, especially in many of the inner cities where, you know, you have serial numbers carved off and all sorts of trading going on in the black market. You're so right. As I have said so many times before, we are a gun culture. People get guns. And when they get them, often they leave them around. And when you leave them around, some child is going to think it's a toy and there will be a tragedy which we can only imagine and pray doesn't happen. But it does happen, and that's what's so awful here. And by the way, we have 50 states, and every state's got a little bit different. And in New York, if they can't get a gun, they go somewhere else and they get a gun. This is insanity, and we have to do better. Legislative Gazette political observer, Alan Shartok. Listening to the Legislative Gazette, program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustino. Democrat Bill Owens served in the U.S. House from 2009 through 2014, representing New York's current 21st district, and remains a keen observer of political activity in Washington, D.C. and Albany. He recently discussed redistricting, inflation, and other issues with the Legislative Gazette's Pat Bradley and began by assessing New York's redrawn U.S. House maps. In the aggregate, Democrats still have 15 solidly Democratic districts where whoever is the Democratic candidate is going to most likely win. Uh, Republicans, I think, have three of those, obviously including um, our district. Then there's a group of toss-up seats. Um, And that piece of it really didn't surprise me, um, but... The fact that um, many people were cut out of their district by very thin lines. For instance, Brian Higgins in Buffalo. I mean, apparently he's across the street from the line, right? That doesn't make any sense. Um, You have a number of other people, Paul Tonko, even Elise Stefanik. Um, She no longer resides in the district. Paul doesn't reside in his district. I thought some of those things were very strange. And I read the decision and the and the special master's report, and he didn't really give a well-reasoned answer to that question. What do you think the ramifications are for Stefanik and the upcoming election in the new district? I don't think actually it changes her situation very much. Um I think the old, the district as drawn by Democrats was very favorable to her. This, I think, is essentially equally favorable uh, in terms of the uh, R rating. Um, What I do think that's changed is the recent attacks that she's absorbed. Um, We have her mentor at Harvard um, being quoted in the Washington Post, Uh, saying basically she went to the dark side. 
uh, fairly, you know, dramatic language. This man is a longtime Republican stalwart. Then you have the Lincoln Project going after her. Um, the timing of that seems to be of interest. Stefanik, from what I understand, though, is using a Trumpian response to the Harvard individual saying, I never really knew this person well, and I haven't talked to him for decades. Um, right. And everything she does now is MAGA-driven. Um, interestingly enough, somebody pointed out to me, a gentleman that I correspond with in D.C., who's a law school professor, uh, that she has switched out her entire staff. Her major staff in D.C. is no longer local people. It is MAGA people. I mean, she's made this huge jump to the extreme right, which to me, a surprise, because when she first came into office, uh, as the gentleman from Harvard described her, she was, you know, a real bipartisan, centrist-type person. And uh, then she began to move to the right. And that started in her second term. Uh, in her first term, she was around the middle. Second term, moved to the right a bit. Third term, way to the right. And she just jumped on the Trump bandwagon and has stayed there. Stefanik has said that she's proud of being what's called ultra-maga. That's a phrase that's gaining traction, has been for a few months now. How will the ultra-maga stance work for her in New York 21? Well, it's pretty clear, based upon Mr. Trump's uh, polling and voting in 16 and in 20, that the district has moved into, uh, I would say, a strong a stronghold for Mr. Trump and his views. Um, so I think it probably plays okay for her. Um, unless something else were to evolve, I don't think it creates a, a lot of risk. I, I'm not suggesting that I think it's the right thing to do. I'm just saying I think as a political um, bit of analysis, I don't know that there's great risk. Our conversation with former Democratic Congressman Bill Owens was recorded before the school shooting in Texas. Owens is a regular commentator for WAMC. He is a partner at the legal firm Stafford Owens, Piller, Murnane, Kelleher, and Trombley in Plattsburgh, New York, and a strategic advisor at Denton's in Washington, D.C. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Pat Bradley. You are listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustina. Last week, a portrait of a late World War II soldier was returned to its family after it was unknowingly stored for decades in an upstate New York home. The Legislative Gazette's Lucas Willard traveled to SUNY Cobleskill to learn more about the portrait and brings us this story. My name's Robert Nixon. I go by Rob. Aunt Flo was... Uh, 99 when she died, passed away. She ended up uh, 
going into Robinson Terrace, um, first assisted living place, independent living. And she stayed there for about three years. And one day she said, you know, Rob, I'm getting too old. And my wife, Kay, uh, said, We're, I'm getting too old. You need to sell the house. You need to get rid of all my stuff. She said, I really don't care about it. She said, I'm here. So we said, okay. So we came up from Florida and we went ahead and started going through her basement and her house and she had notes all over the place, little sticky notes everywhere. But anyway, we were cleaning out the basement and we ended up finding the painting. And I said, boy, this is really a nice painting. Kay goes, yeah, yeah it is. I said, you know, we really need to uh, find out who this painting is. Let's take it over to Flo and see if she recognizes. So we grabbed the painting, went into Robinson Terrace and had the painting in our hand and we said, Flo, do you know who this is? And she goes, yeah, that's George White's. And I go, hmm, okay, all right, that's good. I said, was, she a, was, was he a friend of yours? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. He, was, he worked in uh, a milk inspector in Cobleskill. And I go, okay. I said, he was in the war. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's all I got out of her. That was it. So I said, okay. So we put the painting away, and then we started our hunt for George Whites. Uh, my name is Gary Whites. I'm George's son. George had three children. I'm the oldest. My dad had uh, uh, gone to officer's candidate school, uh, graduated as a second lieutenant. During the war, he eventually ended up as a first lieutenant. He was uh, I know that he landed at Utah Beach on D-Day plus five, which is not D-Day. And uh, he was in the Quartermaster Corps. He spent time in France and Belgium. I, I got on my phone, typed in George White, Cobble Skill. I finally got a hit in the, on the class of 1937, George White's. You know how they have all of these hundreds of names, and it's buried down there, and there's little highlighted George White's, class of 37. Kay came out of Walmart and I said, hey, I think we got a, uh, a lead on the painting. And she goes, really? I said, I think, she says, he was a graduate of Cobble School? And I said, yeah, maybe they can help us. Maybe we'll find the, find the owner. So, so we, I, we had to go back to Richfield, find the painting, get the painting, come back, and we walked up to Na Nap Hall and banged on the door and there was John. He was there, and I said, well, we got this painting, and he said, he said, oh, yeah, I would love to help you find. I said, I think we might have a link here, and he goes, we'll take it from here, and I'm like, uh, finally, somebody's going to help us in this endeavor. So I'm Kate Weaver. I work in the advancement office, and I got back from lunch, and John says, I got a little task I want you to work on, <laughs> and uh, so I said, I'm on it, and, and I'm intrigued by little mysteries and investigations, and uh, I knew I couldn't spend tons of time on it, but you know, it certainly wasn't an easy search. I, like Rob, had tried George White's Cobleskill, uh, George White's, whatever I could think of, and uh, there are several George White's out there, and uh, nothing seemed to really lead somewhere, but I kept stashing this information and stashing it away. and. One day I'm thinking to myself, oh my gosh, Thanksgiving is coming. And I, I, I had it in my brain. This was going to be done by the holidays. This was, this was going to be home. I thought, what do we know for sure? And I went back and I found him in the yearbook, that same 1937 yearbook. 
and I see Pine Island, New York, and I said, okay, he's from Pine Island. Maybe somebody in Pine Island still knows the White's family. <laughs> so I reach out on the internet and I type in Pine Island, New York, and I thought, historical society, they would care about this. And uh, up came Drowned Lands Historical Society, and they had a Facebook page. And uh, I messaged, and, and it was too much to put in a message, and I just said, I have something really important. I hope somebody will contact me. And, and literally overnight, I heard back from them, send us more information. And there was just a dozen sleuth historians on the task. And one of their members um, really gave the key. I, I don't know where she got it from, but she said, yeah, George went on, he got married, and he has at least one son, Gary. And he's, he's in Pennsylvania, and here's a possible phone number. I originally got a phone call from Kate Weaver. I was in a particularly foul mood that day. And uh, I had assumed it was someone that was going to send me an extended warranty on one of my vehicles. And I usually I don't answer the phone, because, I mean, we all get four or five of these a day. Kate said, in a very humble, meek way, are you Gary White's? And I, my first response is, why do you want to know? And she said, well, was your father's name George White's? And I said, yes. Now, the average person selling me something wouldn't really probably know that. And then she said, did he go to Cobleskill? And I had known that my dad had attended Cobleskill Agricultural School. Uh, his father was an onion farmer in the Pine Island area, the Black Dirt area, which is, as you, is probably one of the best places in the world uh, for farming. And um, she said, did he go to Cobleskill? And I was under the impression that he may have gone after World War II with the GI Bill. I was wrong. He was a graduate of 1937. So one thing led to another. I, I said, she said, Gary, I have a, a painting. I think it's your father. I said, well, Kate, I'll be home in half an hour. Why don't you send me an email? I'll check it. If it's him, I'll let you know. If not, I'll let you know. I'll give you the straight story. Got home. I said, that's my dad. I said, look, I'll pay whatever it costs for you people to ship it properly to me in the Poconos. Kate volunteered her boss, John Zacharek. He said, well, John will drive it to you. I said, well, that's crazy. That's three and a half hours away. So we agreed to meet in my hometown of Middletown, New York, which is probably midway for both of us. The portrait is of, of my father in his World War II uniform. When I uh, started researching, I spoke to my friend Matt, who's very much into history, and uh, he told me actually that it was customary for soldiers when they arrived in Europe to have paintings done like this and shipped home to friends and family. Mm -hmm. He actually has one of his grandfather from the war. And, mm -hmm. and I was a little surprised. I love going to flea markets and antique sales and that. And it was something that's never stood out in my mind to see paintings like this. But then again, probably families hold on to these too. It could have very well been done when he came ashore in Europe. Uh, when you go to France, when you go to Paris, you'll see people on the street painting pictures. It, it seems to be more, seems to be better than that. It certainly doesn't seem to be like a 10-minute caricature to painting. So mm -hmm. I, I honestly am not sure uh, of the provenance of that painting. She kept everything, and it was like behind some, oh, an old dresser or something. It was back in the corner. It wasn't, it wasn't displayed in her house. It was down in the basement. We went through some of her personal things in the home, and we found a picture of her and George. It was dated 1945, December 1945. The snow was up to here, and they were very happily standing there. He was in the same 
uniform that you see now. It looked like they were going out on a date. And it said, Flo Govern, George White's, December 1945. She had her heart broken a couple of times, and I think that might have been, you know, just the, the times, you know, and uh, so she never did marry. So I'm not really sure what went on, but we can leave it up to everybody's imagination, but the picture of them together looked like very they were nice. very mm -hmm. happy. Yeah. Rob, mm -hmm. you mentioned that Flo loved to dance. I yes. mean, and, and we're thinking about a time period where dances were an oh. extremely popular pastime. And the big band era. My, my dad loved to dance. Oh, good. Yeah, big he loved the big band era. Yep. We grew up with listening to big band music in our house. And I mean, her being in Stanford and yep. the college being here so close, yep. perhaps they had connected. Mm -hmm. Oh, I'm sure. I can just way. hear Benny Goodman mm -hmm. and all those guys, you know, they're really mm -hmm. probably having a great time. Mm -hmm. for, for me, it's such an honor and a privilege to have this painting in my house. Uh, one thing that we went through with my brother and sister, I will have the painting, and that was up for discussion, which is why it's not framed because I just realized that I'm going to be the one that has the painting, and now we'll decide where it's going to be and how we're going to frame it. Um, I cannot believe the amount of effort that the Nixons, that Kate Weaver, and John Zacharek put into this to try to track us down and find us, and I've relayed to them on multiple occasions. Um, I, I just, you know, I could see where somebody would find a picture like this and go, you know, we can probably get 20, more, 20 bucks by putting this in a flea market and selling it. The effort that was made along the way is, to me, a major part of the story of this painting and why it has so much meaning and will always remain in my home for the rest of our lives. And that just is, is it's more than icing on the cake. It's really the story behind the painting, which to me is probably the most impressive part of this entire endeavor. I didn't bring this up before, but um, that was not the only painting I found in the cellar. <laughs> there was another one of another soldier. And um, Kate, you got a job. <laughs> um, it's still in the camp, and it's staring at me like, help me. And um, I don't know where to take it from here, but um, I found, we found two. Following the meeting at SUNY Cobleskill in May, Gary Weitz believes the second portrait found by Rob Nixon is also of his late father, George. That was the Legislative Gazette's Lucas Willard reporting. And that about does it for this week's show. We had help from the New York State Public Radio Network. For copies, call 1-800-323-9262. That's 1-800-323-9262. Ask for program number 2222. Or just listen online at wamc.org or schedule a podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And join us again next week at the same time. For more news on New York State government and politics, for the Legislative Gazette, I'm David Gustina.